0: welcome back to the 2023 academy awards preview i am bowen tibbets here with my friend and your friend justin horowitz hello hello justin how you doing i'm good how about you i'm doing great because today we well tonight it is very late on the east coast and uh night earlier nighttime on the west coast where you are we're mixing things up a little bit. People have listened to us gab about the Oscars before, i have heard us do one or a few movies for that were nominated for Best Picture this year, mixing it up a little bit. Because you're an excellent writer, because I'm a writer, uh, we're going to do Best Adapted Screenplay. And there's a couple other reasons why I chose Best Adapted Screenplay as the thing to focus on this year. But we'll, we'll get into that. Um, so uh, before we get started, just... So there's no confusion on anyone's part. Best Adapted Screenplay is awarded to any movie. Uh, eligible movies are adapted from previously established material. More often than not, this means the screenplay is based on a novel. Um, they also have plays, short stories, magazine stories for one of these uh, movies that is nominated this year. Um, and also uh, other films and characters. Again, a couple of movies that were nominated this year have that in this year we have two novels we have two movies based on characters from previous movies and one uh, screenplay that's based on a previous film any quick thoughts before we jump in justin
1: well your comment about me as roy was very sweet i just wanted to thank you for that and then uh yeah no i'm really excited about about this i'm just kind of obsessed, just like obsessed with adaptation and just the process of it in gen, in general, like one of my classes while at AFI was writing the adaptation, it was an incredible class with with, uh, Karen Jansen, this incredible writer. And it was just so fascinating to just think of it, just, you know, what adaptation is and like what a strong adaptation is. And it'll probably, will probably have crossover naturally as we discuss the merits of each adaptation. But like one of the big things that she mentions that I probably am going to come back to in the conversation is how much it lives on its own. You know, like it can't just be like, you know, like a transcription of a novel, even though No Country for Old Men actually was a transcription basically of, you know, the original (laughs) Cormac McCarthy novel as the Coens referred to it. But it really is about like how much this thing stands on its own as a film and not just, you know, you know, a book to a film, but literally a film like a film with, you know, its own you know language, its own integrity, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Yeah, there's. I think there's sort of two schools of thought with most people um, when they come to seeing approaching adaptations. And I think Harry Potter is a great way to sort of look at it yeah. in that way. There's some people that want a one-to-one translation, the Christopher Columbus method, shall we say, um, where it's the exact representation of what's on the page is on the screen. And then there's the other uh, side that prefers something a little different, that you're adding something to the story, to the narrative to the visual representation, whatever it may be. Um, and we can call that the Alfonso Coron Prince of Azkaban method. Because um, the book already exists. So do you need an exact representation of it? Yeah. I don't even think
1: he read the book. Like, because I mean, his adaptation process, if he's, you know, completely honest, which I'm going to guess he is, is that he never likes to read the books. He has someone else read it for him, like, and then write a summary of it. Because he's so afraid of fidelity to a book that it allows him to get, it gives him more distance as like a writer or director, what have you, so that he can make like, what is really the best decision for this as a film, you know? And I think that's why his adaptations are like really strong. Like Children of Men, particularly not to go off on a tangent, unrelated to the current nominees, but Children of Men is an excellent adaptation, even though it's completely different from the book, which is also an extraordinary book on its own merits. So just like that type of
0: thing. Absolutely. And so let's seg right into our first nominee. Uh, well, well, so the first nominee is All Quiet on the Western Front. We're gonna go through these in alphabetical order. And there's someone who definitely read the book. It is the director, Edward Berger, because he is also one of the three screenwriters uh, of the adapted screenplay, along with Leslie Patterson and Ian Stokel. This is based on the one of the most famous uh modern novels, All Quiet on the Western Front is a novel that came out in 1928 written by Eric Maria Remarque. Probably pronounced that wrong, so apologies. About World War 1. I. I think most people look at this as the war novel in in everything that that very short phrase means. I will admit I have not read the novel. Uh this is um I know a lot of people cover in high school.
1: Yeah, I I read it in high school. I have like you know not not like a full specter of the memory but i remember being really blown away by it like really just shattered by it just the perspective and just what it said especially because the war, the World war war one is so under discussed really compared to like most contemporary most uh 20 like 20th century wars really you know like don't people don't even really know often actually how it came to be really and so like that was what really struck me when I first read that book and i and there are passages there are parts of that book that I remember, and even when I was talking to my dad about it, my dad was like, "I remember things from this book like even and he probably hasn't read it also since like high school too that are still like etched in his memory.
0: This is definitely more of a directorial than a screenplay, so probably not the best place to start the conversation, but there's a lot of sequences in the film um that are very much etched and a lot of it has to do with the tactile senses when they're covered in mud or blood and and what sort of gets caked on and like i'm assuming this movie's nominated for makeup i yeah
1: it's nominated for makeup and yeah it, it honestly should win for makeup too like personally like like i think it's the strongest out of the categories which are kind of very like most of the categories are kind of very hey look at the prosthetic we did you know that's it. And not like really, like, I think it's a very limited definition of makeup. And then all quiet is like, oh, thank
0: God, an actual real
1: nominee that takes itself seriously.
0: (laughs) You know? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I I think one of the things that's, again, it's war, it's trench warfare is very much do the same thing over and over again. Um, And you gain either very little ground or absolutely no ground at all. And so a lot of the movie, I think the structure of this movie could feel kind of the same way. Whereas it might be a real challenge to escalate the stakes when the stakes are essentially the same from minute one to, you know, the to the final shots um, of we're in our trench there and theirs, and we, you know, go back and forth. Well, that's what's
1: really smart about the script. I mean, I can't really say the same thing about the novel essay because I don't have a strong memory of it, but you really do feel an arc for this movie. Like you feel it's about like this, The dehumanization of this guy, you know, you feel like him slowly etched in there, and then I think, and then the thing too that here's the thing that the the thing the movie does that's really fucking brilliant, really, and it it might be the thing that actually like I know there are a lot of people who are very kind of not a fan of the adaptation, like critics I like you know follow and writers I admire a lot, who you know take take I think liberty of a lot of the changes of the book, and I believe this is one of them, which is. All the stuff with the generals and the armistice deal, that's not in the book. You don't see those at all. You're stu- you are with uh, Paul's perspective the entire time. But the thing I love, because one, it gives you a real sense of a proverbial ticking clock. You know, it's, it's like when you have like, it's like when you're watching a movie about like a criminal or someone on the run and you keep coming back to the cop, you know. It's this way of really keeping track of where we're at, how close we are and everything like that. Like it, and there's this intensity and there's building intensity. And for me, I think it's such a brilliant move, too, because I think it really honors, well, one, it's about something that I feel people don't really talk about, which is the Armistice deal and how the the guy Daniel Bruehl plays was like a fucking hero, too. But I think it's really, it really visualizes and develops this really great passage in the novel, one of the most iconic passages, which is, you know, Paul's like kind of, you know, thinking about just how absurd it is that, you know, they're all dying while all these leaders are just kind of bickering and just doing their shit and, you know, being like, what if the leaders actually had to do the the fighting themselves? What if they actually had to fight each other with bats and stuff like that? You know, and it really feels like it's kind of taking that idea, you know, which is a very internal idea, which, you know, a lot of the book is like, it's very like internal and just being like, how do we communicate? How do we explore this? Not even just acknowledge it visually, but like, explore it. And it really gives it, I feel such a depth, you know, in such a tragedy and such a sadness too, you know. To the movie that I think, like I mean, it's always been there, you know. Like, like you know, like the ending is still the
0: same, but right. Speaking, speaking of the ending, I think it really does sort of, again, the the ebbs and flows of the narrative structure and the escalation. The ending is so um, spoilered for the ending of this hundred year old book, but um, <laughs> the uh, the ending where you feel like they're like they sign the armistice deal, they say you know eleventh hour, eleventh day, eleventh month. Great. And then the general like refused to give up and then they send them back out. And it feels so futile, you know? And it's like, they were so close. It's
1: so fucking infuriating. Like like you're like literally, I was literally screaming at, the sc- at my screen while, while it was happening being like, no, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. And they were like literally shooting the people who wouldn't go back. And then what underscores the tragedy of it all is just like, you know, the 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 armistice deal officially comes in after Paul gets stabbed. Like he literally misses it by seconds. And it's so fucking futile, the whole thing. And so just fucking tragic. Like for me, like one of the, to rewind a little bit too, like one of the most striking moments of the story. And for me, it was kind of the moment where I I didn't really think of how significant it was when I was watching it, but I look back at it as really kind of like, what makes this film so strong is there's a scene where like, you know, the generals are like in like one of the cars, you know, and they're looking at all the pastries. And one of them is like, is that croissant? uh, Is that stale? And I felt genuinely tense and it's like, why are you feeling tense about a croissant and a general's opinion about a croissant? But I'm like, that general, if he's not impressed with that croissant, could go back to the Germans and say, "Fuck your deal," and get and more people will die. That's insane. That I like literally had that trajectory of thought.
0: I'm so glad you brought the food up because I wanted to do the same thing. And that was something that kept coming back throughout in so many different interesting ways, whether it was, again, the the, the most obvious way being the food the generals are served on the rail car. And then the general has in the, in the German or German Confederacy or whatever the nation was called yeah. at that time in the, in the, in the house. I think
1: it was the Weimar Republic, but I could be wrong.
0: Yeah. Right. And then thank you. Um. And then also the food that they have, Uh, when they get into the French trenches and all the French people have much nicer food, which is hilarious. Um, And then also just the way that they're stealing food, whether it's the, the, are they hunting turkeys? Is that what they're hunting? Chickens and then the goose and then the eggs that they're stealing as well um, from the farmer.
1: Yeah. They're doing like a lookout thing and it's just so telling and just, you know, and ends with one of them getting killed, like in a really fucking heartbreaking that really like, beautiful that really devastating shot of like the i think it's not it's it's paul's friend i forget the name of the character and he's standing across in this wide shot from that kid with the gun and it's just so sad you know how it's going to end immediately and it's so like fucking wrenching so all they wanted was just like a better meal like i don't even like or or even a meal like i think it was just like they were just starving really you know and it's just
0: when they're back at the camp before the before the armistice deal is signed, but basically when it's been signed that night and they're passing the the soup around yeah. and their friend who is I think lost his leg or is mortally injured, they he takes one of the forks and kills himself with oh, it. Oh
1: g- yeah. yeah. In fact that yeah, fuck that God, it's it's a fucking yeah, it's
0: it's, it's heavy. <laughs> yeah, it, <laughs> it's it's,
1: it's, a, and it's it, but it's a movie that it feels like It doesn't feel gratuitous, you know, and it feels like it really does have something to say. I know that's been kind of the, the thing that people have been kind of holding against this movie is like, it's just another war film, it's just another tragedy or whatever. But I feel like it actually does have something to say, you know, like it really has something to say about the war and the time and the way it uses cinema as like in all the mechanisms of it, you know, from the screenplay on to really just kind of communicate. This feeling, and it's just such an astonishing. It's just an astonishing. It's a beautiful script, and it's an astonishing. I
0: I I agree. I think it's a movie, and this is why this crop of nominees is so fascinating. Because I would consider this moving forward an integral war movie in the canon that is Western cinema, and that is the genre of military of war of of any of those things. And again, we'll get back to military in in a few minutes. Um, but let's shift gears completely. And again, this is such a fascinating crop of nominees. Um, Your guy, Ryan Johnson, um, his sec, this is his second uh, um, screenplay nomination. This is his first adapted screenplay. He was previously nominated for knives out in 2019 for original screenplay. His second nomination is glass onion a knives out mystery based on the character Benoit Blanc created by Ryan Johnson. Um, it, technically, the newest adapt, adaptation of all of these films because the, the work it was based on is 2019, um, and also again it's based on a single character uh, who is a, an homage to um, mystery writers Agatha Christie specifically, but mystery writers in general. This movie is really fun. Um, I don't know what you. I don't. We haven't. We have not talked about this too too much. We haven't. I mean, I I had a blast.
1: Like I saw it. I had. I saw it at probably one of the last theatrical screen or the main, when they did that one AMC did that one week where it was like glass onion. I went to the very last one, of the very last ones at a, the universal AMC and my audience was just fucking riveted. Like every, like every laugh just landed, but it's also, it was also a weird thing too. Cause you know, like the whole, you know, obviously the movie should have been in theaters more than one week, you know, it should have obviously been mm-hmm. that, but what happened was because it was so limited the, the release time and it was at a really bad time too like a time where everyone was really busy because it's you know the holidays you know and everything like that it was like thanksgiving weekend everyone who's at that movie is not a passive viewer no one is just there because like i don't know let's see glass onion no everyone is there because they want to see this movie and like like for example when nicole and like i One of my running jokes is that you can kind of tell the temperature of the audience by the way they respond to a Nicole Kidman opening, you know, and they roared the moment that like, like we hear like the little footsteps in the rain. I'm like, oh, it's going to be great. And yeah, I had a blast. I thought it was really fun. I, you know, I don't think it's as strong of a movie or as compelling or as emotional as the first one, you know. Like And I think it was, and I don't think there was ever a world where it could have been personally. Like, I think it's a movie that kind of, you just kind of can't really, it's kind of, the first one's kind of magic in a bottle. You can't really kind of replicate that, you know, or lightning in a bottle technically. But the movie does some really smart things and it really plays with the audience in a way that I think is really smart, which, and here's something that I feel like people don't discuss about the movie it plays with the fact that we all thought Benoit Blanc was an idiot in the last movie. Mm -hmm. That is the key crux of the entire movie is knowing how much we all thought he was an idiot. And like Ryan Johnson is like so smart about it, you know, that he's very like, that is going to be literally my cloth. That like the movie does not work without us underestimating him for the first hour of the movie, because he does exactly what he, you know, sets out to do, which is he's a red herring for, you know, I'm going to, it's all spoiler right now. I don't care. It's glass on I mean, you. You had three months guys. Come on. Uh, <laughs> you know, Is as a distraction for Janelle Monae's character to solve the mystery.
0: The sort of reveal, as you say, and there's another movie on this list, which we'll get to again next that sort of plays with time jumps and going backwards to reveal things and giving more context to them. Um, but it's one thing that I think he's now done twice like it's i mean the the, the what's the famous the famous i think it's in the simpsons it's the famous joke of like how does he write mystery novels it's like well he figured he, he, he writes the ending and then works backwards from that and so it's like it still still takes a a real intelligent person to to know how to drop those clues in and how to work backwards from it um and i think it's also evidence this is definitely a movie that you know the internet and twitter have a lot of thoughts on the internet got really excited with creating their own, basically Benoit Blanc fan fiction. Oh yeah. That was so fun. I
1: think I did one of those myself. Like I was like, I want, I want him to deal with like, I think like Denzel Washington in one, which I think would be really funny (laughs) because here's, (laughs) Um, here's here's the thing. Brief Denzel sidebar. He like someone I was, my favorite, one of my favorite critics, David Sims was pointing out how like, no one delivers lines of dialogue the way denzel does like 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 it's like a line where it's like a dead he'll like look normal people will just be like a dead body, huh he'll be like a dead body hey! <laughs> like there's such an utter strangeness to the way he approaches everything I love it, but anyway, back to glass onion
0: yeah it it was it's It's very interesting too to see it, and it's I think because the writer director screenplay like you like we said and going working within the two hundred eighty character framework of Twitter, um, but everyone is trying to I think this is what this signifies that um, Ryan Johnson has created such a singular voice and such a unique character is everyone um, is able to is is able to and wants to write dialogue for this character yeah, um, to varying degrees of success, I would say, yeah. but like, how often does that happen? And like you said, like people to have their Denzel impression, but like how many times, how often does it happen that thousands of people are inspired to write well, essentially fan fiction for a, a fictional character? You know, it's it's pretty uncommon.
1: Yeah, no, totally, and one of my favorite jokes is like someone kept me in like, they want it to be a Muppets mystery next, you know?
0: Right, that would be fantastic. Yeah. And speaking of like when people go forward and what they want their expectations to be, you said you watched this in theaters. I'm jealous of that because you and I did watch the first Knives Out in theaters back in November of 2019. I did not get to watch this movie in theaters, um, but I did watch it on my iPhone with (laughs) headphones. And, but at the same time, it was kind of really cool because I'm, I'm, I'm kind of anti-Netflix's binge model, but I do love the idea. And even if they're harming the theatrical viewing experience, I really love the idea of Netflix dropping these event movies. Um, Glass Onion is their Christmas movie, you know? I, I
1: do. I do too, you know? And it's so weird now that I think of it because I actually watched Quiet on the Western front of my laptop and not the big screen, but then I watched Glass Onion on the big screen. Like, even though glass even though glass onion isn't as visually of a
0: stunning film it's still i was like, I think there's I a lot of cool color stuff happening yeah. so i don't necessarily think it's not stunning yeah no
1: it's like still a good looking movie and it's really smartly you know tangent is very smartly blocked like steve steve yedlin and and ryan just have such an innate sense of like where to put people in the frame like like almost mm-hmm. just like a spielbergian level like you know instinct almost yeah of just like like not even showy, showy but just like literally it's like this is the war, this is the most dramatically interesting position
0: in the front if if anyone wants a 20 minute crash course through blocking Ryan Johnson did an incredible uh, video with Vanity Fair. Oh, oh yeah, it was the one the with uh, for the first Knives Out. Yeah, I I watched that. It's... No, he did he did one for Glass Onion too. Oh, he
1: did. Yeah. Oh God, I yeah, so check it out. Yeah, he he's just he's just so smart with the images, and you can and and like you know just study like also old older Ryan Johnson films like you know like the Last Jedi is just such like immaculate blocking and just so smart like you know even when you don't really realize it and then Looper his like incredible Joseph Gordon-Levitt Bruce Willis film is just so immaculately composed dude. but yeah with with this film though yeah like glass I need to go further into like the story and everything like that it's a smart sequel but I don't think it's as emotionally resonant of a sequel like I don't think it lands in the same way emotionally like the first movie there was a real sense of you really felt for Anna De Armas really and there was and there was something so compelling about realizing that the story was about her and you being invested in her trying to get ahead trying to figure this out, trying to get away with it all you know and you just felt this profound emotional connection to her especially with her relationship with the other characters really and how you know it really was it's a, it's like you know an antagonism but it's not like a very pure like Ha ha! We hate you type thing, kind of in the way that the antagonists were in this movie. You know, it's very like like a black and white. wall, you know, and and it's not to say that the an antagonists in the first movie aren't bad. They're 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 probably worse, honestly. I think like the, the ones in the first movie were like pretty racist, actually. Is but they really there is much more shades of gray, and there's much less of a sense of like whether we are on stable ground or not compared to this movie where it's like you're not on stable ground at all. You know. And I think it affects the tension of the story. And given I still enjoy it, I still enjoy Janelle Monet's story in the film. I just don't think it's as particularly compelling because she is a rich person fighting rich people compared to the first movie, which was about a poor person fighting rich people innately.
0: Right. Um, the the last thing I'd really like to hit on with this movie, um, screenplay-wise, is well, there's a fantastic Chekhov's gun here as far as mystery movies go, I think there, there are multiple uh, of these, but the check—the true Chekhov's gun—is not a gun. It's a—it's the most famous painting in the world. Is the Mona Lisa? Is the, yeah. the Chekhov's gun? I
1: wasn't even—I um, was thinking about. I was just thinking about the actual gun of the movie and like the way that. They yes. Played. No.
0: I. And I, I think that's again. I think it's such a, a well. I think it's a very well structured screenplay for a number of reasons. And again, the fact that he sets these things up. Um, with, again, with the gun that does go off, I think multiple times throughout the film. Well, I, Um, I I just
1: love the joke of like, like, you know, like you have the whole setup initially where, where Dan Craig is like, it's like, it's like, it's like like putting a gun on the table and turning all the lights off. And then when he realizes it happens, he's like, oh, fuck me. (laughs) Like, like brief sidebar. I love how so much of the ending of this, the whole, I love how his arc in the movie is a person who wants to be challenged. And he wants to believe that people are really smart, even the most malicious people. And he realizes how utterly fucking stupid everyone is, you know, and just him struggling to reconcile that completely. <laughs> and the actual satisfaction of him finally recognizing it and how that's actually integral to the mystery of the story. Like, I love how his arc is part of the mystery. Like, like he needs to have that journey in order to truly understand, solve the mystery. Like you can't, he has to realize that he's dealing with, a very dumb person. <laughs> in order to win. Anyway, sorry. The Mona Lisa.
0: No, no, that's. I mean, that's like you said. Like it all wraps it up, and the tension gets built through all throughout all of these things. And I think it's one of the most impressive things about this screenplay is how it it balances tension and comedy. Um, because the Mona Lisa, again, spoiler alert for this three month. This is a little less bad than the hundred year old book, but. Um, this you know the mona lisa is going to go up in flames at some point because that's how it's structured right and the moment it's played for comedy and tension every single time in just a tremendous way
1: it's so it's so good and just so smart and it's also just such a reveal people don't talk about it how it's also such a revealing character beat for edward norton because like fucking cries at it he doesn't cry at killing you know janelle Monet's twin he doesn't cry with all the other depths, but he cries with the Mona Lisa. And I think it really, it's kind of like Ryan Johnson's way of being like, this guy is a psycho. Like he is a psycho, <laughs> you know, without being like capital P psycho, which is also a thing I actually really like about this movie is how like, I feel they could have leaned into it, especially with Edward Norton who used to be such an overactor that they could have really leaned into his villainy. And it's just like, nah, it's just a dick. Who's done some really awful, like, monstrous you know which i think just makes them the character and the performance just so much stronger
0: yeah um the next movie on our list tonight is probably the quietest even with a movie with quiet in the title this is probably the quietest movie of them all um i think we're both sort of closer to being ambivalent on this film i en- I, th- I believe you still you said you liked it i enjoyed it um it was not you know, not mind-blowing. This is not a movie I would say you have to go watch immediately, but I think it's still a very, very well-made movie, very well-acted, very well-written. Um, the movie is Living, written by Nobel Prize winner Kazuo Ishiguro, based on the 1952 Japanese film Ikuro. Um, you might know Ishiguro from Remains of the Day or Never Let Me Go. Those are his two biggest um, novels. Never Let Me Go is... One of my all-time favorite novels. I still haven't read that. I, I also really want to see
1: that movie because I know like Garland did the adaptation, who is just like an extraordinary writer in his own right too.
0: Yeah, it's it's it is truly one of the most. Um, it's I wouldn't I, I'm not going to say anything about it because I think it's the perfect example of a book that the less you know going into it, the better it is. But read it. Um. So, so living follows Bill Nye, and I discovered that I always thought his name was pronounced Bill Nye. I listened to him on a podcast with my favorite bookstore in London. They have a podcast. Oh, that's and he fun. Was on it. It's very fun. Um. So it's pronounced Bill Nye, apparently. Yeah. Um. Hatchard's uh bookstore on Piccadilly. <laughs> and, uh, the, uh, Sorry, it, it the word Piccadilly. Yeah, I got it. I got to, got to plug them. but the movie, the reason I bring this up especially is because this movie takes place uh in Mayfair where the this bookstore is, is located in real life. Um it takes place in the 1950s in England and one of the the things about the, the Bill Nye went into a lot of the the background of the movie and the podcast and basically he was he met Mr. grow at a dinner and they said do you want to make this movie together and it was a couple of independent very talented british independent producers um and sort of all came together i feel like in a very old school way and of course because these are all people in their 60s and 70s so i'm not totally not shocked by that either um but it's a very um contemplative um, quiet i th- but i think very beautiful in some moments movie about a man who Uh, has gone about his life, sort of not breaking any rules, being very rote in his daily um, activities, and he discovers that he has a terminal uh, illness and the movies about him, um, how that affects his life and the way he wants to live life.
1: Yeah, I kind of went in kind of with a bit of the expectation of admittedly the most annoying, dumb fucking lens of all time, which is... They nominated this movie because they didn't have any other big movies to nominate in the adapted screenplay category this year. Like, it kind of went – I kind of went in with that kind of, like, low expectation a little bit, which is so stupid and unfair. And literally no one outside of Los Angeles or maybe even New York will ever approach a movie like that, and they should not. It is stupid and pretentious and fuck that. But that was just my mind and my dumb award season brain. But I was very, like, you know – I was struck by, even though, like, I was struck by, like, how genuine it was for a movie that dealt with, like, these types of issues. Because I feel like a lot of these movies kind of, there's a bit of a glibness, I feel like, especially in this area of, like, you know, Sundance films kind of chasing, like, you can see a, a Sundance version of the story being just so, like, glib and hokey and everything like that. Like, you see, like, the dumb, you know, you have you have that, like... You you, ha- you have, like, the uh, like the almost, like, the 50-50 version of this movie, really, in a way. But it's, I, but, and I was very surprised how genuine and heartfelt and it was. And you really feel it in the bones. And part of it is, like, Bill's performance, obviously, which I think is really underrated, personally. Like, I think it's tremendous. I think it's actually better than Austin and Brendan, who are the two frontrunners in the best actor race, personally. Like, I think it's such a tremendous piece of acting, really, and just so, like, you feel it in the bones. You feel like in every little morsel so of his performance and the way he looks and the way he moves and the way he interacts with people. But, and it's also for the character, really. And it's such a well-written character. And it's really smartly, beautifully written. This kind, of, But like it's also a story where it has all these moments of surprising grace and depth and field and specificity. But also is a film where I think it kind of... It's also kind of, I feel it's mannered a little bit to death. Like it's kind of, and it's kind of a thing where it's like, I really don't know what the way around it would have been because it needs to be like that. Cause it's about British society at that time, especially that little corner mm-hmm. of British society. But at the same time, I think it creates a bit of a blurring effect for the characters where a lot of characters, they don't really, they kind of become part of more of like a machine really, or more like a community that's kind of more singular instead of like truly like reflecting like individuals really. And also, personally, I don't find the portrayal of women in this film to be particularly great, you know? Like, I think, like, like how there's, there's only two women in the movie, really, a significant characters. One is just, like, a free-willing, like, we live life happily person who happens to be very young and attractive, and then the other who is, you know, not as a little older and not as conventionally attractive is portrayed as a nag who doesn't like joy. It's a little, like, it's a little, it's a little, it's a little facetious, and I don't really view it as, like, intentional sexism at all on part of you know the filmmakers at all. Like I don't it does it doesn't really strike me like that at all personally. But it's something that feels very noted in the grand scheme of things.
0: Yeah, I, I don't think it's I don't think it's sexism more isn't it's just not the strongest uh, writing I think. I think to what you said about the 50 50 comment um coming from an American perspective I think it's really easy to picture this movie and I'm surprised and I'm sur- again be- coming from independent producers this is why this didn't happen but it's so easy to see the Will Ferrell version of this movie um where he gets a little crazier and like a moment that I can one of my favorite moments in the movie scene sequences in the movie is when he uh is trying to push the project that he's working on through all of the bureaucracy of the of the London uh uh, office government office and he just refuses to leave he just sits down quietly and says great i'll wait that part i love so much like cuz it, it
1: because it feels like a moment of like character and growth meeting at the same time like it's kind of like it is unmistakably him but it's also unmistakably him at this point of his life too right
0: so- and i and i think that's a tremendous moment and the same thing happens earlier when they go to um oh my gosh. I'm my wife is gonna kill me for not remembering the name of the tea room. Um but is it as you to the Knickerbocker Sunday? Exactly. That Sunday
1: looks amazing. I've never heard of that before. And I'm like, God, I want this so
0: fucking bad. Very famous British dessert. Um but uh yeah. <laughs> the but and again the Wolf Farrell version of this movie he gets the Sunday, and he gets it all over his face and it's messy and and, it, and, it's like, it,
1: and and on on that similar note too one of the things i, I one of the things i kind of the really point out the genius in the movie is like when he's kind of like you know he's kind of trying to let loose with tom burke in a very inspired piece of casting i'm always really happy he's one of those guys where whenever he shows up now i'm just like oh i'm so happy to see him he plays the uh the guy at the pier in in the shore you know in case you're not aware who you know decides to show bill nye The fun life, and he's best known probably for his lead role in the very excellent Joanna Hogg film, The Souvenir, and also as Orson Welles in *Mank*. And so, but the thing I love about that sequence so much is, Bill Nye does not know how to have fun at all. Like, he literally is, like, he can't even have fun if he tries. Like, he and, and there is something so sad about it, and like him trying to sing that song and not even be able to finish it. It's like devastating. It's so devastating and it's not like a funny scene at all it's just really sad because you're you're seeing like this guy's pro in a program and just cannot literally cannot even imagine this idea like it, it can't even like accept an idea
0: yeah um editor's note it is fortnum's uh, as in fortnum and mason which is a very popular uh tea room if in, we ever in um, england we have to go there <laughs> like I, I kind of want to do an I, well, trip now with you i have gone there and it is amazing um very very good, best tea I've ever had in my life. Oh my god! They Did you go there? It anyway? Comes delivered at the perfect at the perfect temperature. Um, What's the perfect temperature? I don't even know. But like <laughs> it was it was it came served in a beautiful. You order your own pot of tea. They bring the teapot. They bring the cakes. They bring the savory sandwiches. All of that. What'd you get? Um, and you? Uh, what'd you
1: say? What'd you get with the tea?
0: Oh, it's yeah, uh, it's oh, it's I don't even know how to describe all of it. It comes in this three layered um tray the bottom layer is finger sandwiches and there were four different types of sandwiches there is a Jub- um uh the jubilee chicken san- uh, coronation chicken sandwich was kind of like a curry chicken there was tuna there was a salmon like a salmon lox one and then the next level is um scones so it's more um a, a butchery kind of savory there was one that was bacon. There was one that was plain. There was one that had uh, dried fruit in it. And then the top it? layer is chocolates and jams and sweets. Yeah, it's fantastic.
1: But what do you get from the tray?
0: Oh no, it's all of it. You get all of it. Oh god, that's incredible. That's yeah, and the, and beautiful. they bring you when you finish it. They say, would you like more? And you say yes, and they bring you a whole new tray that has all the same stuff. It's like it's endless. Basically, that sounds. Absolutely incredible. I wonder if they... I don't
1: think they went there in the movie The Souvenir, right? Because like, I know they go to a tea room in The Souvenir, but I don't think they go there. Not
0: not that one specifically, I don't think.
1: Um. Yeah, but yeah. jumping back to this movie, though. Yeah, like, I, like there's a lot I really do like about it, and I was really surprised about it. But it's also a movie where... Yeah, I feel like the characters kind of blur a bit. I think that, you know, the, you know, the quote-unquote audience surrogate character is so underridden like and he has just such a shift like he just moves so like immediately with like, only being on the, the 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 desk for a day with this guy like and then when he doesn't show up back to work he's all of a sudden like i miss him i feel like we're all falling apart I'm like you've only been there for like you've only had him for one fucking day like jesus christ kid you're such a you're such a little brat <laughs> you know but um, <laughs> and then he has a quick, ro- and then the only way he ever looks at his colleague is like a romance, like "fuck you, dude, you piece of like like I I, I really hope she like stuffs like a knickerbocker Sunday in your fucking face." <laughs> um,
0: anyway, sorry. The um, what my, my to to wrap up this to wrap up our living conversation yeah. without going too deep into London quality of life and all of those things. Um, huh. I really the the real big twist um in this movie is the third act is basically entirely a flashback um bill nye's character passes away off camera um in the shift between at the end of between the end of the second act and the beginning of the third act um i was curious i have not seen ikiru um but i was read the wikipedia summary of the movie yeah i'm unfortunately struck- yeah i've
1: unfortunately Go not seen ikiru myself either i really want to though
0: Um, but according to the wikipedia uh summary which we should trust because wikipedia anyone can edit it so it has the best information um the yeah it looks looks like wikipedia
1: is saying that we are already engaged in a nuclear war right now
0: oh fun okay (laughs) oh geez um on happier note i guess about talking about dead british man um the (laughs) so the 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 structure is the same the third act begins with the wake uh for the main character oh that's um but in the Japanese film, uh, it, the the action remains at the wake and I, there might be flashbacks, there might not be, but the action remains at the wake and does not move on from there, except at the end of the movie in the Japanese version, original Japanese version, they say, we're going to do a better job. We're going to, you know, be the people, you know, we want to be. And I guess this sort of does this in, this, in the British version as well, but then they end up going back to the um, office and it's not quite as successful. Um they sort of slide back into the
1: They're, drudgery their own of,
0: methods. Yeah. That part Yeah, really I do think that like the character that you do not care for, I feel like he's still sort of they sort of leave it open because I'm trying to remember the exact order of events now. But the movie ends with him talking to the policeman by the park, correct? Yeah,
1: it, it does. And I mean you get a sense that he's like been moved by this guy's experience. Like don't get me wrong. I just felt like he's a character who really is just existing as reaction like he's ex, he's existing as a character to be impacted by this person instead of like of his own like unique autonomy really you know right. like 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 what is it like but yeah like i think the way that the story i can't really speak to the, how it works in akira unfortunately cuz i have not watched it but i think the decision is actually very smart like i was very struck by it i was like stunned when it happened like wait he's dead <laughs> you know like when we got to the wake like it's so sh- shocking but i think it's so smart because I think it allows us to get over the depth and move forward with the story, really. Mm-hmm.
0: And anyway, we're not building to the death anymore. Yeah, it, you know what I mean. Like, it,
1: yeah, because a slight spoiler, I will mention for a different movie. Like one of my favorite movies of the last decade or the last that came out in the last ten years. It's a movie called Other People, which I'm not sure. Have you seen that movie? I have not. But I know that you're big. Yeah, familiar. it's Jesse Plemons, Molly Shen, and It's about a like it's a it's like an autobiographical story from chris kelly who was an snl writer and now like the the co-creator showrunner of uh the other two and he and the and it's about like him take him taking care of his mother as she's dying of cancer and the movie begins with literally the mother had just died and the whole movie as a flat begins then leading up to it and so immediately it's like this is how it ends don't worry about or feel tense about whether it's going to happen or not, because that's doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. What matters is everything else. Like just who would, how these people behave, you know? And I think movie has a similar, it creates a similar effect because of that is a sense of like, it really isn't about counting the days down to the death really anymore. It's about now that it's happened, what did he do in the last days of his life? And I think it's really resonant, really. And I really, and I that part of the movie I do really like because it becomes a story. Because I'm, I'm always really, and it's a thing that kind of the Sundance model has kind of fucked with me. Unfortunately, I think it's kind of like misconstrued this notion. But I, I I love a journey from apathy to empathy. Like I love a story about someone who literally starts out apathetic, you know, actually engaging in the world in some way. And making it better. And there's something so sweet about what he's doing and so kind. Like he's building a playground. He's fucking building a playground. It's like, it's not, he's not like saving the world. He's just being like, I want to bring joy to a few people, really. And there's something about it for me that's so sweet, you know, that I would have found even sweeter if the film didn't keep underscoring how kind it was (laughs) a little bit. Like I'm like, okay, we get it. We get it. He's a nice guy. (laughs) You know, we don't have to like literally remind ourselves, but like it's, But it still is resonant, though, regardless of the the film almost kind of undermining itself in that way.
0: So speaking of saving the world and underscoring how awesome you are, the one we've all been waiting for, Top Gun Maverick. Dun, 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 dun. written by Ethan Kruger, and dun, dun, Christopher McQuarrie, dun, 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 and Aaron Warren Singer, story by Peter Craig and Justin Marks, dun, 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 based on the film Top Gun dun, dun, from 1986, dun, 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 which was based on a magazine article called the Top Guns from the early 1980s. Uh, Christopher McQuarrie is the only Oscar winner that is nominated in this category this year, he won original screenplay for Usual Suspects in 1995. A good movie, but, mo- a very good movie. Bad actor, bad bad guy. But more importantly, yeah. God, I worked on this movie. I know,
1: <laughs> so it you have, and and we talked about it leading up, like like throughout like the the year. It was like one of those things where you know you just kept telling me these wild stories about it. I'm like, huh? Wow, damn.
0: Oh. And, well, and And this is one of the reasons why I'm so fascinated, why this is why part of the reason why I wanted to do best at app screenplays because I would still get to talk about Top Gun. And also um, I'm not going to, not that I'm on an NDA or anything like that, but I'm not going to go too much into the, too, too much in the background, but, I am fascinated break by the credits. Break it, break it, break <laughs> it, break it. <laughs> I, I am fascinated by the credits on this movie. They, um, it,
1: they are, and it's it it's so weird, too, because, I mean, like, WGA arbitration is just a fucking weird thing, you know? And mm-hmm. as someone who's, like, studied it and been fascinated by it, it is a very strange process, you know? And it's a process that actually has very good intentions, though, because a lot of the arbitration process really is to protect, you know non-major writers really it's meant to protect right. like people who aren't like the chris mcquarris of the world it's meant to protect the people who like that one movie credit could literally be like what keeps you afloat and give keeps a, a roof over your head for a decade sometimes
0: right and, and all that and all that being said like you said it's very important to have like the the, the the peter and justin who got i've never i've never met them i have no idea who they are who got the story by credit i think they did a very very early draft this movie was in pre-production for i think over a decade um very like first series pre-production for like probably eight or ten years i'm trying to get the script down i think the script does pay off um but McHugh came in really in the back at the the end to really push it over the finish line um and so there definitely were some structural problems um i think throughout the throughout the whole process and i think they i think most of them are solved i i think they did a really good job with all of that I don't, th- I don't think there are too too many holes because i think it's the kind of movie where you go in you're expecting to be like well how is he like this isn't a real plane he can't fly uh 11 g's like what the heck like throw that out it's top gun it's tom cruise get rid of that you know it doesn't matter yeah
1: i mean um, i mean people have people just have a weird logic with these types of things you know but i i mean yeah i went into this movie kind of a very Though I had the sense from you that this was going to be something special just because you kept mentioning how it was a movie where there was like, I'm not sure if I'm going to violate an NDA or whatever, but there was like no expense spared for the movie. There was no expense spared. And there were refilming things, delaying things to get it right. And it was a movie where it's like, we are going to spend as much time as we need to get it right. It's, never, it's not going to be a hack job. But that's also the Tom Cruise way of working is we don't, we don't, like, we don't settle
0: ever. Right. And then the funny thing about that is this movie was delayed many, many times. It was actually done for a year and a half before it came out. It was delayed for three
1: fucking years. Like most, I feel like, I feel like half of the movie was filmed in like 2018, if I'm not mistaken, right? Or yeah. And,
0: and, it. and like, yeah, the, the, the actual release date was about, I think, maybe 16 months after it was actually completed. Because they knew it was going to make a billion dollars, and they wanted to put it in theaters when people were going to go see in theaters.
1: Do you think it would have made a billion dollars if it had come out originally when it, if 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 they didn't have all if the the timing of it had worked out and they were able to release it in 2019? Do you actually think it would have made a billion
0: dollars though? Well, I mean that's a really interesting question. Again, like especially if you're looking at the credits as they are given with McHugh on them, no, because this is the movie that was in that existed in 2019 is not the movie that we saw today is not the movie that's nominated for best picture not the not movie that's nominated for best uh editing best uh cinematography it was not nominated for um, cinematography oh
1: wasn't yeah that's the thing that people are shocked well, by. that's disgusting
0: it, it, it doesn't um, like, even the new
1: york critics circle gave it best cinematography
0: <laughs> you know yeah. like let, well, like joe got did did joe get no he didn't
1: no joe didn't get i mean he got a dga nom though which is well deserved you know I th- I think I think Joe is honestly the unsung hero of this pr- this film for reasons that we could go into. Like I think he's just I, I I get why he's not recognized, but I think he's just such a he's he's a smart director in ways that are so not obvious to people, I yes. feel like, personally. But anyway, he just knows really what matters. And on innately tr and innately knows that what matters is what will we'll cover everyone's concerns, it will cover everyone's egos and that simplistic kind of approach to it that kind of forward-thinking approach i think just kind of really just pays off in such like dividends
0: yeah i think they're. i think all of them approach that way i think jerry has an innate ability to know what is working and what isn't um i think what makes he has that sort of instinct i think that's what makes him a successful producer in a lot of ways um apart from other things but i yeah they're all of them are they're there, and they'll whittle, they'll have the big thing, and they'll whittle it down to the essence of what's supposed to be. And that's why the screenplay nomination is so fascinating to me, because this screenplay does not exist in the way that a traditional screenplay does, especially for original versus adapted. Um, I don't know the process that all Quiet on the Western Front went through. I don't know the process Glass Onion or Living went through, but I have to think that at one point, Ryan Johnson had a completed shooting script. At one point, there was a Top Gun Maverick shooting script, but that is not even close to what the finished product is. Um, there's reshoots, there's rewrites, there's. It's the like Chris McQuar. Is, is, is
1: it? Is it the Chris? Was it? Was it the Chris McQuarrie structure of you know, kind of like?
0: I don't think it was as crazy as Mission Impossible, where they only had thirty pages and then started shooting. That's, um, kind, of,
1: that's Chris... kind of astonishing, honestly, about him. Like it's like he literally like that movie like the mission possible movies are so cohesive for movies that should not be cohesive at all. Like, like that's like, yeah, yeah. it's like literally bananas.
0: McHugh is immensely talented, I think at troubleshooting. Um, and that's why he was really brought in on this. And there's a lot of, a lot of people were brought in to say like clearly Paramount, like you mentioned earlier, no expense was spared. That is correct. Um, Paramount knew they had a hit on their hands, but it wasn't quite finished yet. Like maybe it was going to make even $600 million. Right. But it wasn't gonna be that tentpole, that all-time blockbuster movie. And so they brought in someone like Lady Gaga to write the, to write and perform the credit song. Um, they brought in McHugh to come do reshoots. They brought in T-Bone Burnett to be a music supervisor, all of these things that happened towards the back, the towards the end of production. Um, and even little things. And that's the thing that's so interesting about again the screenplay nomination is like, what exactly are you? What makes a good adapted screenplay? Is it because you, like you said, is it a one-to-one translation of the movie? Is it the fact that you're able to take the chunk of the movie and make little differences? So McHugh coming in and helping rewrite um, the scene where uh, Tom Cruise, oh my God, I can't remember the, Tom Cruise's girlfriend, he like is in her house and then the daughter comes home and he like jumps out the window. That was a very last minute reshoot. I um,
1: yeah, I I can see that. Like I, and it's also something that also makes sense because I think that is like the lit the least strong element of the story, which I think is overall like a really strong script. Actually, personally, like I, but I think that's the area where it's a little underdeveloped, which is kind of a shame because I think all the intentions with that character are good, especially in an era where like. Every star that's above the age of 50 has to date a girl that's like 30 years old, you know, it's kind of nice to actually have a woman who is not just like in her late 40s, early 50s, but someone who actually is truly someone who is believably that age, like her, like with with her background and personality and everything like that, it all matches. It's just, it's just the writing wasn't fully at a level of specificity or nowhere near as compelling as everything else about the movie
0: sure um i could talk about this movie for a very long time but yeah, i'm just gonna it for the sake of brevity brevity i want to go over again since we did sort of the third act dissection of living um third act of talking maverick is awesome it um, it's
1: pretty extraordinary it's kind of like it pays off like a slot machine and like you know to i and i know like this thing like blank check like 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 uh, Griffin, like Newman, one of the co-hosts of it, you talk about, you know, how he and Marie Barty point out how just extraordinary, like, that is with the script or at least the element of, like, how they're... Ex- they explain to you in so much detail in, like, Act 2 how the mission is supposed to go that so much repeating, 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 variations, repeating, repeating that by the time it happens there, you know exactly how it's supposed to go. And they don't need to remind you at all. You're just watching it happen. And you're watching the things either succeed or catastrophically go wrong. It's like such immaculate screenwriting, really, Personally, Right. Like, it's also great and then, filmmaking, but I think more importantly, it's
0: great screenwriting. Yeah, I think the, the moment when you realize, wait, I know exactly how this is supposed to go. How are they going to get out of here? They never went over that. <laughs>
1: And, and it also, and I don't know if this did it for you, but it did for me. There was a point actually in the act free where before, you know, we cut to Tom Cruise on the ground that I actually thought he was going to die. Yeah. I actually same. thought he was going to die. And, uh, and I think that really is to the credit of the movie that made, it made me believe that for a second. And it also made me believe during the tension. Like I felt such unnerving tension during the bombing run like in the whole run in a way that i feel like i don't really feel with most blockbusters really like i think the batman ironically enough also co-written by uh, peter craig is one of the other actually few really recent examples too of actual blockbusters that actually elicits tension like genuine That's tension it. really and and like break through every guardrail you have as an audience member to elicit that feeling really it's kind it's pretty stunning
0: yeah um so yeah um jerry i hope you get that best picture um it was was a pleasure it was a pleasure having the tiniest little part yeah this movie
1: you're part you're part of a best picture nominee you're a part of
0: history um all right our final nominee women talking by, uh, di- written and directed, Wr- directed and adapted for the screen, and directed by Sarah Polly. She's a previous Oscar nominee from *Away from Her* from 2008. *Woman Talking* is based on the novel by Miriam Tows. Miriam Taze. Apologies, it's uh, Miriam from 2018. So again, pretty recent um, novel. Uh, the, the story itself takes place in 2010 uh, about a group of Mennonite women who have discovered that. Um, they are being assaulted in a number of ways, uh, physically, emotionally, um, by the men in their repressive uh, religious community, and they have to decide whether they're going to A, stay and forgive the men, uh, B, stay and fight the men to demand equality, or, three, or C, leave. Um, before we get into it, this is the current favorite uh, in almost every metric for this award. Um, the Hollywood Reporter has put it at a 61.5% chance of winning Best Adapted Screenplay, um, which is followed by All Quiet on the Western Front at 24%, Living at 5.7%, Top Gun at 5.4%, and The Glass Onion at 3.4%. Uh, if you're a betting man, uh, it is minus 250 in odds, which means you would have to. Uh, bet you have to put up two hundred fifty dollars to win one hundred dollars. Um, quick aside for that, if you are looking for value, living's probably where you want to put your money on this. It's plus twenty five hundred. With I love how we're getting
1: dollars. into fucking gambling
0: now. <laughs> yeah, it's just. It's just, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, if you're looking for a safe bet, is obviously women talking, but the value's not really there. So if you're looking for a little risk, put 10 bucks on her, living. Her Oscar quarter office figures.
1: is only, like, five fucking dollars. Like, Jesus Christ, these people are insane. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah. No, but it is the front-runner. And, like, personally, in my own Oscar prediction, like, I believe it and I could see it. And I'm not surprised. I'm surprised that it got so few nominations, ultimately, like I thought it would, even though it it got nicked for like the stupidest fucking thing, which is people. I think voters couldn't tell the woman apart, which is a genuine thing that I think actually happened, which is really fucking stupid, <laughs> you know. <laughs> like you know, like like people just have no fucking spatial facial recognition at all, you know.
0: But it, I think that, but that's kind of you know whatever. But I think it's like a- well, I think to that point about the nominations is. The one of the ways, if you're again, if you're looking to win your Oscar pool, your Oscar party, vote for the is swap out best with the most. Um, right. Yeah. That and all of these performances are really understated. They have each actress kind of has a moment where they're where they explode a little yeah. bit. But <laughs> well, like the what most I'm part. saying is, I think a lot of
1: them are the most. Like I think they are going for it. Like like Claire Foy is going for it, and Jesse Buckley is going for it. I think that's what surprised me really too
0: was it, Yeah, it, I, I think they're 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 what makes them great performances. They is they are pretty reserved, perhaps what I personally think. Except for like, again, they each have one monologue or two. They have one or two monologues each where they get a little bit louder. No, like they, they have a lot of reserved moments,
1: and I don't. And, and I'm and what I'm saying is not a knock against their performances at all. I think it works for the film's benefit. It's just I thought it was like I thought those performances, was the ones that were more Oscar contenders, were the louder performances compared to like which I. I think the best performance of the movie is Sheila McCarthy, who plays Jesse Buckley's mom. It's a much more understated performance, but that never has shot because Oscars don't like to give, (laughs) recognize understated work at all. Like Bill Nye Nye getting in is only because the category just does not have, it's just so, it's it's. It it, 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 it it is and given I love his performance in that movie I love I love it and I think it's as I said earlier in the podcast it's better than Austin and Brendan personally but it's it's just that's just not where the academy goes personally but they didn't nominate Paul Mezcal, but they' nominate Paul Mescal, which was fucking thrilling.
0: <laughs> I, I would love a, I would have loved the cinematography nomination for this movie I think there are some really a um, really cool camera movements, some great blocking, like we talked about earlier.
1: Yeah, um, it's, just, it's just the color palette of the movie is, like, unnecessarily <laughs> I I feel like
0: that's, like, the dumbest, like,
1: dumb, I, I, it's, like, the dumbest point to hit. Like, I feel like it's, like, beating a dead horse at this point, but it's, like, it, it, it feels like a missed, op- not even just because it's kind of, like, yeah, whatever, but it feels like a missed opportunity, really, and how color can really, in especially the complexity of color can really elevate a story. Like, it feels like it's kind of cutting itself at the knees a little bit as a film, but Regardless, yeah, like, Woman Talking, though, is a film to kind of get into the screenplay. It's a really fascinating film in that way, because I I don't love it like other people do, you know, personally. Like, I think it's a movie that really, I think the ideas the film is interrogating are really great, you know, and really, because it's not just about dealing with assault, you know, but it's really dealing with, like, what is the world that we are bringing our children into, and I think that the, vibe, the, the, the narrative... Like arc, which is, you know, them telling the story to a child, literally for the voice of a child in a way.
0: With that, with that comment, one thing that I think there's been a movement away from recently, a lot of screenwriting classes, and you can tell me if AFI has done this or said anything about it or not. But one thing that I think is very easy to people say, like it's amateur screenwriting is voiceover and voiceover narration.
1: We, We never really talked about that at AFI. But also a lot of my the screenplays we dealt with don't deal don't deal with it like at, at AFI, at least the ones we worked. But my thing with voiceover, and it's always been pretty constant, is it's about how you use it, really, more so it's like any other screenwriting technique. It's it's a screenplay technique that I think got a lot of flack because it was it was so poorly used. But I think it's like especially if it's used the in the best way, which is I think show not tell, you know? Like the reason the taxi driver narration is so great is because it's not just him telling you his thoughts, but it's you realizing, oh, this guy is like psychotic and he should be like locked away. You know, that's like the thing, you know, like it's it's kind of like a thing where you kind of understand it. it it's about feeling. And that's kind of what I love about this. It, is it's not just even one of the woman talk. It's about child. And I think it just one, it's a fascinating perspective. But just really underscores so much of the movie thematically, which is what is the world we want to bring, and especially because Rooney Mar, it's about you know it's a monologue to Rooney Mars' unborn child is well, like or
0: at least that's how I interpret it. Is like what is well the the final again not not to spoil that, but the final shot is the child, so it's I think it is monologue to the to the child. Yeah,
1: no, no, yeah, no, probably yeah, like or no, it is yeah, like and it's like what kind of world do I want to
0: bring my kid
1: into, really, which is a powerful thing is a powerful question to ask in any context, but especially in a particularly traumatic situation. Like, you know, you have parents who so much, you know, lament bringing their kids into a world of global warming, you know, genuinely, like it's a genuine fear and, you know, end the pandemic. And, and then and you, you can only imagine just how much of a weightier crisis it is in this film really, where it's like your entire notion of community has been fundamentally shattered
0: completely yeah and one thing i love about this i love about the screenplay and and the and the book it's based off of is i think like i think it'd be very easy to to throw religion under the bus very quickly but religion is such a key part of their decision making at no point there's one moment where uh i and again this i i think it's um claire foy's character um, questions the omnipotence of uh, of a god, yeah. And, and it's a,
1: which is which is also a question that people ask in crises in general. Like it's like, yeah, it, it, it's, it's a it's a it's a question that transcends religion, really. Like, or well, it's not really transcend religion. I don't know if that's the right word, but it's a thing that's universal with religion. You know, it's like when we face such a crisis that is still so that is so barbaric. It is like what. But like, like, how, how do you reconcile that with a world that you're supposed to believe had a moral balance?
0: Yeah, and I think they didn't – it would have been very easy to, to have all of the women be like, well, clearly they've been lying to us like Satan wasn't actually attacking us, all that. But they still lean on to religion and they sing multiple hymns. Um, to to gain strength throughout the film, and that's why I love about it too. And it's like it also
1: might be a more parallel to my own religious experience, which is kind of like you look in religion not as like a didactic sense of like what is the text and following that in the very like you know literalism. It's it's not like it's not like the const, it's not like the con the bullshit constitutional literalism that like fucking like Scalia hacks like you know like praise. It's really like like it's really like what is this religion actually saying really? And, follow, and kind of really honoring it and going deeper into it, like really going into it and moving away from like the literalism of following the text explicitly, but really into something more spiritual, much more like profound and complex really. And I think the film really honors that so much and it makes the movie just so much more richer and so much more like fascinating and kind of weirdly, insp- or not weirdly, that's the wrong word, but like so much, so genuinely inspiring really.
0: I, I thought it was a very powerful movie. I I understand um, why it is the front runner.
1: And then just it's also so striking. I don't know if you felt this too. I didn't realize until it had until the reveal, until like or not even the reveal because not really revealed, but like twenty minutes into the movie, I was like, oh, this takes place in like the near present day. I assumed it was like in pa- like in the far past, and then you realize, oh, it's actually twenty ten.
0: They're just that. I think the what what tipped it off to me was the buggies had modern day tires on them. Oh wow. I I didn't I wasn't even looking at that at all. Like, I I That's one thing that annoyed the hell out of me about um, <laughs> about uh um Don't Worry Darling is the Palm Springs trolley was like yeah, this does not look like the fifties. I, I,
1: I love how that's your problem. With Don't worry, darling. Like, like you look at every other problem with that movie. It's like I think
0: the tires yeah. are the trolley. We're wrong. The tires are not. <laughs> Anyways, twenty twenty three is the
1: year of the tires. Um, <laughs> no, but the, I. Uh... But yeah, like with women talking, you know to go a little bit more into the screenplay. Like my one thing though, for and I and it's a movie I really like in general. Is it feels a little insecure a little bit at times. It's my only kind of complaint really is that the way it handles the fl- the way it keeps cutting back and forth with visuals during all the talking instead of letting the talking just kind of sit as is i think for me kind of feels a little insecure and it feels like the film is trying to be visual and cinematic instead of just trusting the power of the words
0: that's well that's a great question there's a couple of times I, a great point there's a couple of times i thought throughout this movie i was like why is this not just a stage play um why is this a movie
1: I feel like it were it should be a film still, and I think there's a lot of moments where it works in a way that only a film could. Like I think like the way the film opens up, especially in the last third, is part of that. You know, the, the success of that. It just felt like at times I was like, it felt like it didn't fully trust its own convictions. It felt like it felt like it was like we have to do this, or else the audience is going to get bored. Instead of just trusting the fact that what the women are saying is so compelling and fascinating that it's just like we can just stay on them we don't have to cut away and but that's that's also just a complaint i have in general about like a lot of play film adaptations which is i feel they don't trust the patience of the audience
0: and it's it's the show don't tell and i think uh, melvin was a character that um actually really benefited from the flashbacks that was that was really that was really smartly done too i really i really like yeah I, I think that was again i think this movie this movie really encapsulate a lot of the themes that are like in the zeitgeist in a way that did not feel um that didn't feel showy and maybe that's why i didn't get more respect from the academy and just it just got best picture and best screenplay instead of a couple other things that it might have deserved even something like costume design um with the textures and the fabrics of their dresses i also think it's just, it's just such a fucking hard watch
1: too i mean given like all Crown the western front got nominated for a bunch of it so it's not like it's like we're like they're like completely averse to like very difficult things to watch But it's not an easy thing to watch as a movie, even for its inspirational qualities and the way they find, you know, hope in all the suffering, you know? So it's like, but it is, yeah, it was something that it was a weird, it felt like a weird, you know, thing for the story to ignore, especially with all the hype around it too, really as like a best picture, like front runner too, pretty recently, honestly. But yeah, I think it's a really fascinating movie and a movie that like, I'm like, for all of its flaws, I think it's still, like, a success as a story, you know? And it's a movie that, even though I was a little more ambivalent about it when it came out, it's a movie that I feel like has really stuck with me and grown with me over time as, you know, like, a fascinating movie of what we do when we're faced with the end of the world, you know, what happens at the after the end of the world. And, you know, like, like a movie like Beanpole is, like, an example of that, too, for reference, you know? And like, and so, yeah, I, I think it's a really, really special film.
0: Yeah. Uh, so that is that, those are the best adapted screenplay nominees at the 95th, uh, Academy Awards, uh, all on the Western front glass onion knives out mystery living top gun Maverick and women talking. Um, I enjoyed watching all five of these movies. If you like movies, um, I think they're all streaming, uh, Two of them are on Netflix, uh, one's on Paramount Plus, one's on Amazon Prime. Living might not be streaming; you might have to rent that one. But otherwise, check them out.
1: Are we going to talk about what we think are our personal favorites of the nominees? Yeah, go for it. Yeah, for me, and this is a very recent change. It's t- it's Maverick.
0: I, well i love to hear that justin
1: um yeah i know i know you do no, but, but like i'm I'm genuinely serious like it's a me that i think like the script is just so strong and i think the protagonist is such a compelling protagonist like you know which is you know tom cruise <laughs> you know he's a protagonist like you know but it's really like a, a person who really deals with the fact of like his own relevancy in this world like he's a character who has like you know extreme arrested development you know he's literally a fucking captain like he's not even like a colonel you know even though everyone in his age bracket is you know and Mm -hmm. kind of someone who's like trapped in this like you know it's partly like a genuine hope but also a real sense of sadness like he's kind of like someone who really kind of hasn't really fully moved on from like his guilt from like his colleague's death really you know and Mm -hmm. the movie is about him kind of facing the music really in that way facing his colleague and like i love how so much of this arc is about him just learning that he can't protect him, and learning how to trust him. And there's such a sense of a movie that is so planned, that is a movie that's ultimately about fertility. It's about what are we not able to control in life. And there's such a complexity to the themes. And there's like an actual existentialism that I think just keeps it so, makes it so rich. Though I think Woman Talking will win. I would really, and I highly, there's no chance in hell top gun is going to win best screenplay but i would love it if top gun maverick won best screenplay because it's my favorite of the five nominations
0: i think to to what to what you're saying i think it does a lot of uh, it it is a very complex and it's a very interesting place to take the character and if you're looking at the category as best adaptation instead of best screenplay which is what it is um i think top gun sort of does stand stand above the rest in that way um, Glass Onion, Knives Out. I think we're just going to keep giving Ryan Johnson screenplay nominations for Knives Out movies for like the next thirty years, and he's not going to ever win one. And I think All Quiet on the Western Front and Women Talking, while both really incredible, really important, really beautiful, really moving, really difficult to watch movies, um, that cover really important issues. They exist as novels, and again, I'd have to read. I have to read them to see. But from what I've heard, what I've seen. Um, they're pretty faithful to the text that they're coming from. And so what exactly is the adaptation in the screenplay? Um, and the same thing kind of goes for a living. Now we're moving it from Japan to London and it's it, obviously there's takes on different things in that way. But I think Top Gun Maverick, the most impressive aspect of it as a movie is we live in a world where everything demands a sequel. We're going to have Toy Story 5, right? We're going to have Woo! 4 Five. 5. Um, these are movies that you know, everything is a sequel because we only trust things that have a proven track record. It's why the adapted screenplay is actually becoming a fascinating category, right? Um, and just with sequels and I think Top Gun, the reason it took so long to go, you know, took so long to become uh, become a reality was I think a lot of people do lip service, a lot of producers, a lot of actors, a lot of writers do lip service to the concept of I'm only making the sequel if the story is good enough. And I think with Top Gun Maverick, the sequel is always happening, but, and so like the sequel was happening, but they had to find that. They had to drill down that story and they had to get it correct. And I think even with Val Kilmer's small cameo, it was a movie that feels, it, it truly makes it the Top Gun, the two Top Gun movies feel like, part one and part two and not uh not it, like it feels like or chapter one and chapter two whatever you want to call it two halves of a whole instead of a sequel 30 years after the original
1: to kind of go back to what i was saying at the very beginning of the po- podcast about adaptation is about like whether this can stand on its own two feet and given i do think i mean I, it's hard to say this about woman talking living and uh because i haven't read the original, i haven't seen the original akira or read you know woman talking's original novel but like all quiet and my, at least in my mind, it feels like it stands on its own two feet. Like it doesn't feel like it's somewhere. It's like, I feel like I've lost something with the app with, I would have lost something if I hadn't known what it was you know, based on. But like the thing that's astonishing so about Top Gun Maverick is it really does stand on its own as a film. Like it's really like, it's a great sequel too, but it's a movie that it takes the original film, which I personally don't find good, <laughs> you know? And it uses it as, the most pathos laced backstory of all time
0: yeah I will um you, you had mentioned that you'd seen glass onion in a full theater and everyone was fully into it, one of the things that I do not get anymore now that I live in Florida instead of in uh, Los Angeles is I really I never get full theaters um, I, I I don't the one exception to that Was top Gun was top Gun because I went to the IMAX theater at World Golf. Ville uh, at the World Golf Village at, with the World Golf Hall of Fame. Oh, nice! And Here. this was a preview. Officially, it was technically a preview, um, a preview of the film. Like, it was on Tuesday. The movie came out on Thursday, and had bonus footage, was what it was described as. And so, the entire theater was full because Jacksonville uh, is a major Navy base. Oh, okay, so a lot of the people that were in the theater had seen top gun when they were in their teens or their 20s and it had inspired them to join the navy oh, wow. and again we don't have time to get into all the war propaganda of this movie but <laughs> just to say, sorry it, top gun the original top gun incredibly increased the amount of enlistments in the navy and all of them were there all the people in the theater were there to celebrate that except for me because i was there to celebrate you know the movie and not the navy <laughs> but um the, but the funniest, but the funniest part, and this is the the thought I'll close with, the true full circle moment, the bonus footage, was a very short behind the scenes featurette. Now, back in twenty, I guess it was twenty nineteen, maybe it was twenty nineteen. I uh, when I interviewed for the job with Jerry Bruckheimer Films and Television, I had to meet off site because I was replacing someone. A potentially replacing someone they didn't want to know that they're interviewing for the job obviously oh so i went downtown to the top gun film set are you dead uh in a big warehouse in downtown los angeles and that was where i met jerry and they said all right like we're gonna like you know do like a little mini we're gonna do like an interview but like just hold on a second we have to film this behind the scenes footage so they went into the room the, the hangout room with the pool table and the pictures on the wall and stuff that was the set that was that they that was there in, in this on the sound stage so the behind the scenes feature out if anyone has seen this um what you don't see is that about 15 feet behind the camera i am sitting there <laughs> listening to them do this behind the scenes interview so anyways f- full circle moment um top gun has my vote my very biased vote Justin's unbiased vote um, probably still biased <laughs> well thank you for chatting with me Justin it's always a pleasure it,
1: it this is this is great man like like we had a blast we went over like I think a half hour and I'm gonna go to bed probably like 30 <laughs> like <laughs> yes. you, probably, you definitely are I think it's like 1 p.m. one one, is,
0: yeah. like one hour on the east coast time. every minute was worth it excited for the Oscars Can't wait to see how it all shakes out. And congratulations to all the nominees and all the people that worked on uh, every movie that came out last year, not just the ones that were nominated for an Academy Award.